0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, my guest today needs no introduction to listeners of this podcast since he is one of the most frequent guests in history. And this is his third appearance in the last year. Uh, So this is Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace and my favorite ecologist. And we're going to talk about his new book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Patrick, welcome back to Power Hour.
0: Great to be back, Alex. Good morning.
1: Good morning. So yeah, I like your, your beautiful background there. Um, just I think it, it showcases your love of nature, but I, I always appreciate your pro-human love of nature, your love of humans as part of nature. And I think that's going to fact. In my view, that actually explains a lot about why your book is so good. So let's jump in. You have this, so the title is called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Why did you name it that?
0: Alex, I named it that because I believe that a lot of the scare stories today are actually fake. And interestingly, most of them, perhaps all of them, are based on things that are actually invisible, like carbon dioxide and radiation, for example. No one can see them. Or very remote, like polar bears and coral reefs, two of the most iconic scare stories we have in the world today. They're so far away, underwater, offshore, on the North Pole, etc., that the average person can't check out for themselves how many polar bears there are or whether the coral reef is alive or dead. And we're being told that the coral reefs are dying, especially the Great Barrier Reef. In 2016, they said 93% of it was, well, they said dying or bleached or about to die or any number of of not quite dead, but they were implying that it was going to be dead any second now. And, And also the future, like the future is not only invisible, but it is also quite remote, like you can't see it. So... I, I, I analyzed all the scare stories and picked 11 of them, including the polar bears and coral reefs and, and the climate change issue itself, which is I treat as a separate issue from all the other things that they say are caused by climate change. And what this means is that the average person has to depend on the activists, the media, the politicians promising to save their grandchildren, And the scientists on serial government grants, all of whom have huge skin in a game, all of whom have political and financial interests in people believing their scare stories. Because if people didn't believe their scare stories, those people wouldn't get any money. And that is where it's all about money. And it's also about power in politics. So I have debunked or deconstructed and demolished 11 of the most important scare stories in the world today and show people in clear language that they don't have to be a scientist to understand it because I've been communicating on the environment for over 50 years, first 15 years with Greenpeace as one of their main spokespersons as we were actually doing good things back then. Now they're just a racket peddling junk science pretty much. And that's the, the thesis of my book. And I think it's a new thesis I don't think anybody else has ever bundled all these scare stories into one narrative, as they like to call it. What I say is the word narrative should be confined to works of fiction because it isn't a scientific word. And they constantly use the word narrative to describe. And and there's so many other words that they're using in unscientific ways. Uh, We could talk about that too. But the main thesis of the book is that the scare stories that are about now, I call those the invisible catastrophes because they claim that the climate change emergency is already here. But in the future, I call those threats of doom. So that's how the title came about. It seems a bit clunky, but I think it works. And I've had a lot of comments, positive comments on the title as it's a, it catches your attention.
1: Yeah, and I think that it is, it is a really important observation that the catastrophizers, as I'll often call them do play in this territory of these things that are remote, that you can't see, that are in the future. I have my own theories as to why they do this. Why do you think that they focus on these things that are invisible?
0: Because no one can discredit it uh, by themselves. No one can observe and verify. Science is based, I mean, discovery is based on observation. That is the first thing that happens in science. You have to see something. The thing that distinguishes science from religion the most is that with religion, you don't actually have to be able to see the old guy in the sky. You just believe in him. But with science, you have to see it for yourself, not necessarily with your eyes, but with an instrument like a Geiger counter or any kind of gauge that shows you the measurement of something in the world. You need to observe that. And then after that, You have to observe it again and again under the same circumstances, just to make sure that wasn't a fluke. So before you say this causes this, and then you have to replicate it. Well, not you, you have to announce your discovery and what you think is your discovery to the world. And then other credentialed scientists who understand the scientific method have to be able to replicate it. In other words, repeat it. That's a big word for meaning repeat. And once a lot of other people have repeated what you say is a true thing about how the world works, you're on the verge of a scientific discovery or hypothesis or even a thesis or a theory. So the theory being the sort of highest level truth in science that has been pretty much proven, like Einstein's theory of relativity. On the other hand, these science theories are always open to reanalysis, not necessarily to turn them on their head but maybe to refine them based on new observations. And so that is the the basis of science. You can't do that if you can't see it. You can't do that if you can't be there. You can't do that in the future. So in particular, the predictions of the future based on computer models, it's just bizarre that people have accepted the idea that you can predict the future with a computer. I mean, it is not a crystal ball. As a matter of fact, the crystal ball is a mythical object. There is no oracle. There is no uh, fortune teller who you can go to who really looks into a crystal ball and tells you your future. You know, it's sort of like tarot. At least with tarot, you have sort of plausible scenarios, if you want to call them that. But with the computer model, they're saying that if you put your assumptions in the computer... That what comes out the other end is true. No, it's only based on your assumptions. And there's an interesting little saying in in science that the difference between a skeptic of climate change, say, or a heretic, and a heretic, the difference between those two is a skeptic disagrees with your conclusions, which would be the output of a computer model. The heretic disagrees with your assumptions which are the basis for your conclusions. Mm. That is an important point because you have to go to the assumptions. When someone tells you something as if it's a fact, they say, well, are you assuming that human beings, CO2 emissions are going to poison the atmosphere? And then when they say yes, you say, well, sorry, but I don't believe you. Because I believe that carbon dioxide is the food for all life on earth and that plants require it. And that it was at a very low level when we came along and started putting CO2 back into the atmosphere. And that we are actually healing the Earth's life system by greening it with new CO2 that was once in the atmosphere and was sucked up by plants and turned into fossil fuels and carbonaceous rocks. Now that's a big subject, but that's what yeah, I Yeah, well, know. we're
1: gonna get in, we're gonna get into that. Cause I but I wanna so you know, my own perspective on things is always philosophical. So I'm really interested in what's the philosophy driving things? And in fact, I don't know if you know this, I have a new book coming out. It's called currently called Fossil Future, uh, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Fossil Fuels, Not Less. And I, so I just submitted the manuscript and this topic is fresh in my mind. Chapter two is called The Secret History of Our Environmental Experts. And you know, it goes into a lot of depth into how these catastrophizers have just been getting everything wrong for decades and decades and decades to the point of predicting something is going to get catastrophically worse when it actually gets better. So if you look at like safety from climate, we're safer from climate than ever. And yet John Holdren predicts a billion climate related deaths, the availability of resources, right? Resources are more abundant than ever, more available than ever. Paul Ehrlich predicts we're going to be, you know, England is going to go just basically totally extinct years ago. And so there's this question of why do people, why do the so-called experts, but also the general public. Why do we keep expecting there to be catastrophes all over the place? There's something and that, I think this goes to the assumptions. I'm curious what you think of this because it is there's something. It's weird because by every empirical measure, the the world is more and more conducive to human life, and yet people believe in these invisible, remote things that say, "Oh, everything's going to end." So, what do you think is going on there?
0: Well, you said it right there, Alex, everything's going to end. And I believe underlying the pessimism and the fear is one's own fear of death. So people are projecting the fear of their own death, which is indeed the end of the world for them. They're projecting that onto the whole world. Like I, I said the other day, I tweeted, stop the baby talk. I mean, what does end of the world mean? Does it implode? Does it explode? Do the seas all catch on fire? Like, there is no end to this world in the next 10 years or whatever they're talking about. This world theoretically will end when the sun turns into a red dwarf, which is actually larger than it is now, because it's a small star, and its life cycle re- will result theoretically and probably truly, because we've seen a lot of history in the stars, Will result in it getting hotter and hotter and expanding and expanding until it does engulf the Earth and the other planets inside the Earth, and maybe all of them in the end. I'm not sure of that. But so the, the the subtitle of my book, with the little guy holding a sign on the cover, you will perish in flames, is actually true, except it's a billion years from now, or two billion years from now, and and it's you don't have to worry about it right yet. But That is why I believe people are subject to this deep pessimism about the future, is because they know they're going to die. And so because I'm not afraid of death, and and I'm not a strong like religious person believing that there's going to be a pearly gates or whatever, uh, I, I don't worry about my death at all. I know it's perfectly natural, and I've learned long ago to try at least and stop worrying about things you can't do anything about, and that is certainly one of them. So I mean, and even worrying about taxes, which is something like they say, death and taxes are the only two things you can't uh, change. It, you can actually change how much you get taxed, but you can't change how much you get dead. So, I think so why is, is it
1: different? Why is it different? Because because it's because I, I can. There's some I, for sure. There's something there. Like if you look at a lot of the catastrophizers, they, they seem to have this, but of course, everyone has known for a long time, for generations, that they're going to die. And yet now, it's, like if you look at, say, the early 1900s, there's a huge amount of optimism about what the future is, things are going to get better, life, you know, the world is going to be a more hospitable place. Even in some of the old discussions of the greenhouse effect, people are thinking, hey, it's going to be greener and it's going to be warmer, particularly toward the poles, and that'll be great. It'll be more tropical earth, which I think is true. And I know you think is true, but, but now it's viewed as, oh, we put more plant food in the atmosphere, it gets a little warmer. That must mean the end of the world. And yet, and the population seems to buy it. So the 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 uh, at least the awareness of death has been a constant for a long time. So what's the difference?
0: Well, I I think there have been doomsday scenarios from the beginning of time as well. Mm. Perhaps it depends on which is ascendant or which one gets included in history more. But if you think about the first half of the 20th century and the two world wars that occurred, and 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 the gulag in Russia and Mao and the starvation of millions millions and millions of people in China during that period. That was a terrible period in human history in many ways, the first 50 years. And the second 50 years were among the most peaceful in the history of civilization. And indeed, that's the same right now. This is in, is truly, and as you say, one of the most wonderful periods in human civilization. And it's also a period in which the humans have started to put the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere that was sucked out by life for hundreds of millions of years. Like when we know about the fossil fuels, every, everybody knows that fossil fuels were made from plants by photosynthesis, but I'm joking a bit because you'd think they were sent straight from hell. <laughs> Where, whereas in fact, plants made all of those fossil fuels. The coal is made from forests, that's why they're called fossil fuels because you can see tree rings in a lot of the lumps of coal, and the gas and oil was made from marine sediments on the bottom of the sea. As the sediments piled up deeper and deeper and deeper over hundreds of millions of years, they got hot down below and got cooked, and so that turned into oil and gas. So carbohydrates turned into hydrocarbons. The oxygen was driven off, and that's why we have these fossil fuels. They are organic in the true meaning of the word organic, which is the chemistry of carbon. All the other chemistry of iron and silicon and and, and every other element is what's called inorganic carbon. And the reason that- Inorganic goodness, chemistry? Pardon I mean, me? You said inorganic carbon, you mean inorganic chemistry? Inorganic chemistry, yes, Got sorry. Is the, is the chemistry of everything else besides carbon. So carbon is seen in chemistry as having a special place of its own. That's because it is the stuff of life. All our flesh is carbon based. Our bones are based on calcium and other minerals, but inside them, there's a lot of carbon where the blood is produced. And I mean, our whole, uh, the whole of life, all the plants, all the animals are made of carbon as it's basic, the basic element in life. And all of that carbon has come from CO2 in the atmosphere or in the water. And the CO2 in the water came from the atmosphere in the first place by dissolving out of the atmosphere into the water. It's interesting to note, I I tweeted this yesterday, that CO2 is not only necessary for plant growth in the atmosphere, and the CO2 we've put in is increasing the plant growth, that's why they call it the greening of the earth or the CO2 fertilization effect more technically. Putting more CO2 in the atmosphere also makes virtually every plant more efficient with water because then they don't have to work so hard to get their CO2, they don't have to open up as many pores under their leaves, which are called stomata. And therefore the water doesn't come out of them as easy when they're in the sun, because plants transpire water. A lot of people know that. That's partly how they bring the minerals up from their roots. But the transpiration process can be reduced when there's more CO2. So now plants that could not grow in a place because it was too dry are marching out into those environments around the world the grasslands in particular, are becoming forested naturally because of our CO2 emissions. So CO2 has two fundamentally important parts in the atmosphere for terrestrial life. In the sea, it's the same. CO2 in the oceans is absolutely essential for life to exist there. If there was no CO2 in the oceans, it would be dead. But CO2 also acts as a buffer, a weak acid. And this is where the whole ocean acidification thing just goes out the window. It's a total farce. CO two in the oceans makes it so the pH of the oceans is about eight, which is slightly alkaline. Without the CO two, the pH of the oceans, because of all the basic elements, sodium, calcium, magnesium, etc., would be eleven point three. The pH of the oceans would be eleven point three, which is the same as Drano, which is made of sodium hydroxide, which you have to wear rubber gloves. To handle.
1: I love I love that fact. I, 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 lo- I love learning that that I, I that, just that learned
0: fact. it from Will Happer. Uh I understand about the buffering capacity of the seas. I've known that since I studied oceanography, but no one has told me the precise definition of a buffering solution before because the oceans have 330 odd times more buffering capacity, that means capable of dealing with large amounts of basic or acidic materials without their pH changing. Freshwater is very sensitive to pH change. Remember the whole acid rain thing was just about a little bit of sulfur dioxide falling on lakes. It turned out to be a bit of a hoax too, but it's theoretically possible that lakes could become acidified because fresh water is actually slightly acid to begin with seawater is entirely alkaline or basic to begin with and will never become acidic because of all these very powerful bases which are the salts in it that make up 30 parts per thousand of seawater it's a lot if you when you when you evaporate seawater you can see the salt that is in the seawater on a piece of paper or on on a pan and that's how we make salt is by evaporating seawater and harvesting the salt. Uh, So this is so important because of course life couldn't exist without CO2 for a food in the sea but the fact that it makes the sea into a pH that is conducive to life as opposed to absolutely hostile to life is another really important fact about carbon and carbon dioxide. So I think one one thing that I really like
1: about your approach, and I, I think I highlight this every time you're on, because I think it's important for everyone to understand, is that well, I'll put it in I'll put it in terms of my answer to why people are so prone to catastrophe. I think a big part of it is what I'll, I call the delicate nurturer premise, which is that absent human beings, nature exists in a perfect, delicate balance that's stable, it's sufficient and safe, and any human impact is going to destroy the balance. and It'll destroy everything else and it'll destroy us. And I think this is just a religious view, but I think most scientists have it, at least most public scientists talking about this, have it as an assumption. And one thing that strikes me about your work is you don't have this assumption. You don't assume that oh it's a delicate that it wasn't a perfect balance. For example, you don't assume the amount of pH we, uh, the amount of CO2 rather we inherited in the in, before the industrial revolution was perfect. You point out in a sense it's out of balance. And I want to talk I want to dislodge and destroy this delicate nurture premise and I think one way to do that is I heard you talk about this recently just Well, the first example I want to talk about is extinctions. Like if nature is a delicate nurturer, why did we have these extinctions? So can you talk about just the five major extinctions and what caused them at root?
0: Yes. Well, the five major extinctions that have occurred since modern life emerged. Right. We don't really know what happened in the sea. Most people don't realize that for 3 billion years, life was microscopic, confined to the sea, and unicellular, just single cells. There was no multicellular life up until about 570 million years ago. And there had been 3 billion years of life before that in the sea. Photosynthesis had been invented in the sea. Sexual reproduction had been invented in the sea. Eukaryotes evolved, which have cells inside our cells, like the chloroplasts, the mitochondria, the nucleus, whereas bacteria have no internal organs in their cell. So all kinds of important aspects of the evolution of life occurred in single-celled organisms. But the Cambrian explosion during the Cambrian period in the 500 plus million year ago period in the sea, again, we're still, life is still all in the sea at this time. That produced multicellular life. And it just exploded in so many different varieties. Read Wonderful Life. By Stephen Jay Gould. He was a wonderful scientist. He was a paleobiologist and an evolutionary biologist. He understood the history of evolution better than most people ever have. And he shows this explosion of life that occurred at the Cambrian explosion, as it's called. And that is when multicellular life forms began. The, the trick was tissue differentiation a single cell is just a single cell. And and we are made of cells, but they are many different kinds of cells, muscle cells, skin cells, eyeball cells, stomach lining cells, you name it, hair follicle cells. Uh, all, All these cells are different. So cellular differentiation made it possible to have a big organism that could digest food through a tube or a big kelp in the ocean with its floating ball on top, holding it up in the sunshine for photosynthesis. All of that happened in the last half billion years. And during that time of the early life being formed, many species of marine life, and this is where I'm going to burst the bubble of the perfect balance completely, many species of marine life used to learn to combine calcium in the sea, which is one of the main salts in the sea, minerals in the sea, with carbon dioxide in the sea, both of which were readily available and they made calcium carbonate with those two dissolved substances, and calcium carbonate is what the shells of all shelled marine creatures is made with. So the clams, a clam shell is made of calcium carbonate. It's typically called limestone when you're talking about the rocks that were formed by all those shells sinking to the bottom of the ocean for half a billion years. And the coral reefs are one of the main calcium carbonate sources because coral reefs build these huge structures by combining calcium and CO2 into calcium carbonate. Limestone and dolomite, which is another form of calcium carbonate, but it has magnesium in it. These comprise 100 million billion tons of carbon. Those rocks, they're called carbonaceous rocks. Because unlike granite or, or igneous rocks that were came out of the earth in volcanoes, the carbonaceous rocks were made by life in the sea, as the shells of shrimp and crabs and barnacles and mussels and clams and oysters and coral reefs and the phytoplankton even, the coccolithophores, which if look that up, in, in, in a picture of a coccolithophore, it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen, the geometry of it. It's, they're microscopic. And then there's the foraminifera, which are animals. The coccolithophores are plants that they photosynthesize, and they're the base of the food chain in the sea. They too learn to build armor plating for themselves, for their soft bodies, out of calcium and carbon dioxide. So all these billions of tons of of carbon have been removed in the form of carbon dioxide being made into calcium carbonate over half a billion years and that's what's caused CO2 to constantly decline in concentration in the global atmosphere and the global oceans, because they are in equilibrium th- with each other. Like nearly three quarters of the Earth's surface is the ocean surface. And there, CO2 goes into the oceans and out of the oceans due to an equilibrium, chemical equilibrium between the two of them. What we did when we came along and started burning fossil fuels and making cement. Cement manufacture is taking limestone, carbonaceous rocks, and baking it so that the CO2 goes off and you have calcium oxide left, which is called lime. And that's a constituent of concrete and cement. So 5% of our emissions are from doing that. So we're actually putting carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere that marine organisms turned into rocks over the last hundreds of millions of years. And we're putting CO2 back into the atmosphere from the fossil fuels that were also made by plants sucking up CO2 from the atmosphere, and then it got buried in the ground as sediments. And both of those things together have resulted with the carbonaceous rocks being by far the major uh, cause in a in a constant decline of CO2. You can see it on the internet anywhere. It's known that 150 million years ago, CO2 was around 2000 to 2500 parts per million. When we came along, as you say, at the beginning of the industrial age, it was 280, but it had been down to 180 during the height of the most recent glaciation 20,000 years ago because the seas, when the seas cool, they absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. When the seas warm, they outgas it and give it off. So at that time, at 180 ppm, CO2 had sunk to only 30 parts per million above the death of plants because plants don't just need CO2 they need a certain amount of it just like we need a certain amount of oxygen oxygen's 20% in the atmosphere that's fine for all of animal life but if it goes down to 5% we die 5% and CO2 at only 0.04% is way enough for plants they can go down to 0.02% and still survive growing much more slowly, which is what happened during the last glaciation period. So the fact is, our putting CO2 back into the atmosphere is the salvation of life on Earth. It was continuously going down, and there is no reason why it wouldn't have continued to go down, because shell life and coral reefs in the sea are not going anywhere soon, and they continue to pump CO2 into the sediments as they live and die. That's what we are, is the salvation, not the destroyer, because we are greening the earth. And NASA just put out a week or two ago a clear statement that our CO2 emissions, greening the earth, have resulted in an area the size of France and Germany, of the Sahara Desert greening since 2020, in 20 years. the Sahara you mean since, c-
1: since 2000?
0: sorry, yes, this being the 2021, since 2000. So in 20 years, since 2000, the Sahara has greened by 700 million square kilometers, the size of Germany and France together. The Sahara is like way bigger than Germany and France together, but a big chunk of it has just greened now because of our, we are just coming into the area where CO2 starts to actually be adequate for decent plant growth up until now and for the last nearly 20 million years when CO2 actually sank to about the level it is now and then continued to sink for another 20 million years until we came along and started putting it back in the atmosphere. Now it's getting to the level where it's pretty good But it's got double or triple to go before it becomes optimum for plants. So the truth is, all the plants out in the wild, where they're just depending on nature for everything they need, if they're getting enough water, sunshine, and nutrients from the soil, carbon dioxide is the limiting factor to their growth. In ecology, the limiting factor is a really important concept because if a plant needs 80 things to grow, minerals and air and all other things it needs, sunshine. And one of those things is is not enough for the plant to grow at optimum level. That is the limiting factor because all other 79 factors could be more than enough for the plant, but if one of those factors, just take light, for example, if you put a, a plant that needs sunshine to grow in the shade, then light becomes the limiting factor for its growth. It will it will not grow very well.
1: Right, it's like a bottleneck in business. right? Yes, it's,
0: like- it's exactly that's what it is, and and so everything else is perfect except there's a traffic jam on the freeway. Right, right. Your car could go 100 miles an hour.
1: Yeah, so you don't need to increase the horsepower of the car.
0: And the it's- only thing that's preventing that is the traffic jam. Right. So, and and in in that sense, this if the CO two is limited. And this, the, the proof of this is also simple. Commercial greenhouse growers, virtually everywhere in the world, if they're making money from growing things in a greenhouse, they add CO2. They buy CO2 for real money and put it in their greenhouse to double and triple the level from 400, which is ambient, to 800 to 1200 PPM. The reason they don't go even higher, because plants would continue to grow better at higher levels, is the economics because there's a diminishing return in the rate of growth per unit of CO2 you put in? So it's economics that determines right, they're the paying,
1: they're paying for it to that point. But if it were free, they would take it Much higher. higher. They take yeah, it
0: three yeah. thousand. So, so it,
1: yeah, so yeah, that that so yeah, I love this point about CO2 because again, it's such a farce that it's a per that we got a perfect amount. Like if you look at the history. It was actually like nature inadvertently was leading toward a mass extinction in terms of lack of CO2, because it was being taken out of what you might call a a better balance. And what you're showing is inadvertently, we of course have made it a much more hospitable thing in terms of co2 i want to talk about some other issues though so people get so this is one respect in which nature is not a delicate nurturer in terms of co2 it's actually was on a dangerous trajectory and we've inadvertently but we can now deliberately continue it on a better trajectory what about temperature though because people think of warming temperatures as oh well that's clearly a human impact that's bad for us and bad for the other species
0: well people would be surprised to know that the Period we're in now, which is called the Pleistocene Ice Age, there are are fakers who are pretending it's over because they say the Ice Age ended with the last glaciation. No, that wasn't the last glaciation. It was the most recent glaciation of about 40 to 45 that have occurred in the 2.5 million year history of the Pleistocene Ice Age, which the beginning of which is based on when the Arctic began to freeze over. 2.5 2.5 million years ago. The Antarctic had already frozen over 20 million years before that. Because the Antarctic is a completely different environment. The, the, well, the Southern Hemisphere is a completely different environment. It has more water than land, way more water than land, whereas the northern hemisphere has actually more land than water. Mm. So the two are and the southern hemisphere, that the South Pole has land on it, high mountains, which are easily glaciated. Whereas the North Pole is an ocean, so it has no mountains to be turned into glaciers. So the, the, the two have completely different patterns of glaciation as the earth goes into a cold climate. That's what we're in now, a cold climate. This is just an interglacial period, which is about 11,000 years long now that came out of the of the most recent glaciation. That's why I say most recent because last can either mean the final one Right. Or the most recent one. Right. And it it isn't the final one. We can't say that because it appears actually from the temperature pattern that's occurred as a result of our knowledge of ice cores and marine sediments, that the temperature is actually slowly going down now for about the last 6000 years. And that's well established. The Roman warm period was definitely warmer than this warm period that we are in now, to date at least. So the the absolute fact is that this period of this 2.5 million year ice age that we've been in is the coldest the earth has been for 250 million years. The last ice age was the Karoo, K-A-R-O-O. It lasted for 100 million years from 350 to 250 million years ago. This was during the Carboniferous period at the beginning when forests formed, when trees came into existence from from low plants that were on the ground, suddenly there's these forests everywhere. That happened then. But also what happened then is the Karoo Ice Age. It didn't end until 250 million years ago. Since then, until just recently, when this Ice Age came on, There was no ice on either pole for nearly 250 million years. The whole world was warm. The Canadian Arctic islands were forested. Giant camels were roaming in them. Most people don't know that camels are actually a new world species and went to the old world over the same land bridge that people and wolves and caribou came here on. So horses and camels are actually new world species and it's an interesting story, just briefly. When people came to the New World during the most recent glaciation, the sea was 400 feet lower. So a bridge occurred between the Russia and Alaska, the Bering Land Bridge, and five species came across it. Humans, brown bears, which became known as grizzly bears here, they're called Eurasian brown bears on the other side, timber wolves, which are from the old world, Caribou, which they call reindeer on the other side. And these species came from the old world to the new world. The humans came here and actually appear, apparently exterminated a fair number of slow moving mammals that had never had humans with spears and, 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 and arrows around, whereas the horses and camels went the other way. Well, the people on the other side who'd not had these pack animals said, Boy, those things look useful. And camels and horses became the primary transportation system for the whole of the old world. The silk route of trade from China to Europe and the Arabian horses and the wars were fought on horseback. The Mongols came, hordes came out and conquered Asia on horseback and camels. And what did the people who came to the new world do? They ate them all. (laughs) That's why there's hardly any horses and camels left in the new world. The only ones are in South America. By that time, the llamas and alpacas and vicuñas are camels. There, no horse species was left. They had uh-huh. to come with the Spaniards in 1500. But the, 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 the people on the other side turned them into this, this, these two really important species of, uh, of pack animals for so- riding and, and for freight. So that gives us the context
1: of just warming and how cold the world is by historical standards. What about just, you know, you have some interesting data, I think, about what happens when it warms a degree, because people think, oh, yeah, well, okay now we're now we're in the perfect balance for us. So if it warms another degree, we're going to die and, you know, the plants are going to die and it's going to be miserable. So what, what do you have to say to that?
0: This, again, is part of the baby talk. Uh, not knowing that the Earth's temperature has changed by r- radical numbers of degrees, like 10 degrees Celsius over its historical period, and that we are in one of the coldest periods in Earth's history right now. The, 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 the three main glaciations, the Silurian, the Carew, and the Pleistocene, have been exceptions to the fact that the Earth has been warmer from pole to pole through most of life's existence. They say there was a time back before modern life emerged called Snowball Earth when there was an ice age that actually went nearly to the equator and presumably nearly threatened the extinction of life. Uh, And that's what we don't want, is one of those. Uh, But tropical islands in the Arctic? Not a bad idea. I mean, polar bears, okay, they say polar bears will go extinct if it gets warm because they depend on the ice. Well, polar bears wouldn't exist if it wasn't for climate change. They would not exist. They evolved from brown bears, from grizzly bears, what we call them. But it's the European brown bear. They're, they're circumpolar all around the whole Northern hemisphere. And the, grizz, the, the, the polar bear evolved as the world cooled into the Pleistocene Ice Age and took advantage of the fact that you could hunt seals on ice floes, and became separate genetically from the brown bear, although they are so still so close to the grizzly bear in their genetics that the polar bear and the grizzly can interbreed if they find each other because they tend to be in different habitats. If they find each other, they can interbreed and produce fertile offspring. In other words, they can produce offspring that could have children themselves, could have young themselves. So that is almost the definition of a species right there, is if you can breed together and have fertile offspring, viable offspring, you're the same species. Mm -hmm. There's many examples of two different species breeding and producing sterile offspring. I believe the donkey is one of those. Right. So polar bears wouldn't exist if it hadn't got cold. And so it's not really right to say, well, oh, my God, it mustn't warm up because then the the polar bears will have a problem. Well, they weren't here in the first place when it was (laughs) warm for 250 million years. And most species would benefit from the warming. The thing that people really don't understand, two key points. First, human beings are a tropical species. We evolved at the equator where there's never any frost or even cold. It seldom goes below about 10 Celsius at the equator. It seldom goes above 95 Fahrenheit Celsius, 30 something. Seldom goes above or below those temperatures. So all all you needed to survive in the equator was a couple of animal skins on a cool night, even outdoors. The only reason humans were able to come out of Africa and colonize the rest of the world was fire, shelter, and clothing. Where I am on Vancouver Island, a human being would die within a very short time if they were just transported here and put here and tried to survive. They could not survive, and that's without fire, shelter, and clothing. would die in a few days for sure. And so that's the only reason we've been able to colonize the rest of the Earth, is because of those things. The other important point is when the Earth does warm, as in the 250 million years of warmer climate that existed before this Pleistocene Ice Age onset, it warms more towards the poles. The equator stays about the same, whereas the warmth becomes more and more. That's why when they tell us in the media that Canada is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world, that is to be expected because we are in we're, we're more than halfway to the North Pole from the equator. And it's it's also to be expected that the poles themselves will perhaps warm at three times the rate of the average of the Earth because the whole equatorial region, where the earth is wider and therefore occupies latitude wise, more area per degree of latitude than the polar areas do that whole area stays relatively stable in temperature when the earth warms, and that's been proven through the various glaciation periods that we've had over the last two and a half million years so that I mean that so.
1: We've talked about this before, but just to summarize, it's, it's basically warming means a more tropical earth. I think we have documented you know longer growing seasons. I think you've pointed out that every degree or so leads to something like 60 miles or 100 kilometers more, you know, like a band of farmland. So this just again, what we see is that there's this expectation that human impact is going to be terrible. And yet there are many ways in which it's good. And I want to ask you uh, in the last part of the show, I, I would love more examples of how human impact benefits the rest of nature? Because I really want to dislodge this idea that, oh, all human impact is bad for everything else and it's bad for us and we're just this terrible species. So what are some other examples of how we make life better for other species, particularly inadvertently, not just, oh, we have a wildlife preserve, but certain activities of ours like CO2 and temperature, actually, but what are some others that benefit other species?
0: Well, I hate to burst your bubble at a fundamental philosophical level, but as a scientist, good and bad are value judgments, and it sort of depends on what you mean, good or bad, for what.
1: Bene, so beneficial for. So I mean, I'll give you an example. So another, another, another example I've heard you give is well, something like eighty-five percent of the fishing in the Gulf of Mexico is near oil rigs, so it it leads to like proliferation of. You know, certain kinds of marine life. So, yeah, I'll, I think of it as um, benefits like the, let's see, fecundity or, or population of other species in ways that is also favorable to us versus, oh, it like creates some, you know, I don't know, algae bloom that in some context was bad for us. So, yeah, well, like other impacts we have on nature that most people would think of, oh, I, I'm glad that's the case.
0: Well, I guess to begin with, one of the other impacts we've had on nature is sort of a negative in the sense that we've reduced the amount of toxic pollution that we are putting out into the environment from burning fossil fuels and from our chemical industries, et cetera. We're not making Superfund sites anymore. We're not just dumping Mm -hmm. waste. We're not, like when when Greenpeace came along, all the rivers in Europe were dead. North America, Canada, and the US had started putting into effect clean air and water laws in the early 70s when Greenpeace started. But the modern environmental movement came along when many of the of the world's air sheds and watersheds and rivers were basically poisoned by pollution, where we had not been designing technology to scrub it out or to get, you know, to to, to control it. So that is a huge positive benefit that's, and even the Chinese are putting scrubbers on their coal plants as as time goes on now. They had a big backlog to deal with of cause. They were just trying to get electricity and they were trying to do it as cheap as they could at the beginning. Because there is a, a great success story there in that, whereas India still has close to half a billion people without reliable electricity, China being so regimented, and that has its upsides and its downsides, of course, being so regimented was able to get electricity to everybody. Some time ago, they all had electricity. And so, and that makes such a huge difference to lifestyle. And now, the, 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 you know, Bjorn Lomberg was the one who pointed out that when society industrializes, at first there's this increase in damage to the environment, especially air pollution and water pollution. But as people get wealthy enough to have a refrigerator and maybe a scooter and a, a nice little house that maybe got air conditioning in it if they live in the tropics, they all of a sudden look around and think this place is a mess and it's it's not nice here to breathe the air and then they are willing to put some of their ex- extra income into say you know pr- improving the environmental conditions around them and that curve goes down so it's sort of a bell-shaped curve and i think that's very accurate in terms of the way our the modern societies have gone in europe and canada and new zealand australia japan united states I mean, it's very clear that the air and water are so much cleaner now than they were then. And this now we've got this huge war on plastics, which is just totally bogus. And it takes advantage of the fact that people see litter as being synonymous with pollution. That's one thing. So if they see a bunch of colored plastic things along the side of the highway, they think that it's bad for the environment. Whereas it isn't having any effect at all on the environment. It's just plastic. And Then the idea that plastic is toxic is, you know, people are saying that plastic is toxic and then they buy their food wrapped all in plastic. And they, the meat cover, you know, the saran wrap on the meat that's made of polyvinyl chloride. That's, that's a plastic and it's non-toxic. That's why we wrap meat with it and it keeps the meat fresh and prevents it from being spoiled or contaminated. It protects it. So we use, and now with the, the, the PPE in the COVID crisis, half the stuff in hospitals is single use plastic. And we don't want to use it again because it might be covered in somebody else's germs. So we incinerate it, that's, that's what we do. And we incinerate it with really good pollution control on the incinerator. So huge strides have been made in reducing the negative impact of humans on the environment while at the same time, we are putting this CO2 back into the atmosphere, which is definitely the biggest positive thing we are doing. And the idea that a degree more of temperature is going to cause billions of climate refugees. The only climate refugees there are in the world today are the people going south from the cold countries in the winter to get away from the cold. Snowbirds, as we call them here in Canada. So. That's where the refugees, they're not really refugees, but they are escaping from the cold. And that's what you want to escape from. It's cold here this morning. This is the middle of March and there's frost on my windshield. I had to chisel my windshield wipers off the windshield this morning. And so it's already, it's almost spring. And I'm 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 just barely a little more than halfway to the North Pole from the equator. And it's freezing here. You don't really want it to be freezing, you know, except maybe up in the high mountains so you can go snowshoeing and skiing. Uh, And and that, too, is a result of the Pleistocene Ice Age. Prior to uh, the onset of this Ice Age in the Northern Hemisphere, there wouldn't have been any skiing. But then again, people didn't really have a lot of spare time back then.
1: Yeah, it makes sense that CO two just because CO two is so fundamental, that's going to be the the biggest impact we have. I'm just curious, you know, of examples of where, um, you know, there's this example you have in the ocean of marine life liking these uh, underground oil drilling installations. What about on on land? Like, because we have this idea that oh, well, if you build a pipeline, like that's going to ruin the lives of all the animals. But I've also heard oh no, it's some animals actually like the warmth of the pipeline or other. Uh, industrial kinds of
0: structures. Yeah, it, it's a fair point. And, and the, the example of oil rigs in the Gulf of Alaska, I mean, in the Gulf of Mexico, is actually a perfect example. I mean, because the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico is basically mud. So organisms like mussels and clams and stuff, they, they, they can live there. But there's lots of things that need something to stick to. That's why reefs are so important in oceanography and in, in ocean life, because coral reefs and rocky reefs, because many marine species need to stick to something. And the, the the huge columns, the towers of the oil rigs going down to the bottom of the sea provide that habitat for sea anemones and mussels and all kinds of things. And that automatically brings in fish and a whole ecosystem evolves around the oil rig. And many years ago that when, when oil rigs became defunct, the green movement said, get them out of here, take them away, they're bad for the environment. But the the fishing p- community said, no, let's just put them to bed, You know, take any contamination there is off them and leave them there because 85% of fishing trips in the Gulf of Mexico are targeted on oil rigs, whether they're active or inactive and there's over 3000 of them so they are actually enhancing the marine biology of the gulf of mexico and that you know people sink old boats as dive sites because the, those old wrecks attract all this marine life and you know greenpeace made this huge issue about the brent spar oil storage platform in the north sea and it cost tens of millions of dollars to dispose of this thing on the land when Shell wanted to sink it in 6,000 feet of water. Well, they should have been smarter and talked about it as an artificial reef and sunk it in shallow water where people could go down and Mm. dive on it and see the the life growing on it because it was just a big piece of steel and concrete. and There's nothing wrong with a big piece of steel and concrete sitting on the bottom of the ocean. As a matter of fact, it becomes habitat for life.
1: Yeah, I mean, if they could be grateful, I think the marine, a lot of the organisms are grateful for it. And there's this point, I got this from Robert Zubrin, but I I like the point just that the the ocean is in many ways a desert, right? I mean, it's like a lot of it. So there's like often there are things that, you know, if like one of these artificial reefs go in the ocean, it it helps these animals versus hurting.
0: Yes, it does. And it's interesting to note that the tropical seas are where it's more like a desert because. In areas where water is upwelling from the deep, like the Humboldt current off Peru and the Bering Sea, there's many other examples of this. Upwelling brings nutrients to the surface. Whereas the sun, the ocean and the land is just opposite. When the sun shines on the land, it warms the land and that causes currents to go up into the upper atmosphere. Whereas when the sun shines on the ocean, it heats the surface And that creates what's called a thermocline, a warmer water on the surface and colder water below. And because colder water is more dense than warm water, it doesn't mix into the surface. So once the nutrients are depleted in the surface and the life sinks through into the deeper water as it dies, there's no nutrients left. So the tropical seas where there is no upwelling are basically pretty much devoid of nutrition. That's why the water is so crystal clear in the mm. tropics and not so clear where there's life in the water, where there's lots of single-celled life and algae and that sort of thing growing in the surface, surface waters. Another interesting thing is the, the Humboldt Current off Peru, which is a huge area of upwelling, of water that sank in the Antarctic because it was cold. When, when water approaches zero, it gets more dense before it freezes and sinks, which is life wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this unique property of water that it gets densest before it solidifies. Mm. Whereas most substances keep getting denser until they solidify, and therefore would sink in their own liquid. Mm. Whereas water, water does not sink as a solid. Ice does not sink, so it stays. The ice remains on the surface. The cold water sinks. And that creates all the ocean currents pretty well. That's pretty well reason for the whole global ocean current system underneath the sea. And that comes up off Peru. When it comes off off Peru, it is the richest in CO2 of any seawater in the world of any large size. So it's full of CO2. Therefore, it's slightly less alkaline. Its pH is slightly lower than the average of the oceans. But because it's so full of CO2, it is the richest fishery in the world because of the co2 it's because it.
1: of the co2 not some other
0: element no in the because water. the co2 is feeding the plankton hmm. plankton are using the carbon dioxide as their source of carbon which is the fundamental source of life and that those car, those those plankton blooms in the humboldt produce the fisheries of anchovies and herring and all these fish that, that it's the, it's the densest fishery in the world in terms of catch per unit area and it's the largest fishery in the world in terms of total catch of wild fish on this planet.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating one. Because, of course, we, what are, I didn't want to get into all the specific things because I want people to read the book uh, on the details. So I wanted to ask you kind of the things I was most curious about. But, of course, in your book, you've got a lot of detail about this ocean acidification, which is a terrible name. I mean, it's like I call it ocean neutralization if you're going to call it anything because it's heading toward neutral or dealkalinization. But uh, yeah. And you have, I just want to recommend to everybody get this book because it does have a very good and accessible breakdown of all of these issues. And for me, the biggest ones were the species extinction, the acidification, the climate in general, because those are the ones where we're really taught, oh yeah, the like the earth is going to become unfit for life. And I think you've shown uh, pretty conclusively that it's actually going to be not only better for our lives, better for the lives of a lot of other species. I'm curious, final question, have you gotten any serious challenges or attempted refutations by any of the catastrophizers?
0: Yes, one of the most brilliant reviews was It's Utter Garbage.
1: Oh, okay, that doesn't Um, So
0: That's about it. Uh, The truth is, it was now six years ago that I gave my presentation in London on the calcium carbonate thesis that That's why CO2 is being drawn down and why we are the saviors. Not one rebuttal has been made to that thesis. They just go quiet. And that's the way the catastrophists work. If you say something that they can't rebut, they just shut up. They will not talk about it. So I it has not been debunked in any way at all. And all I ask people to do is go to the website on Amazon for Fake Invisible catastrophes and Threats of Doom. You will see it is number one in environment in Canada and number two in environment in the United States after just five, six weeks out on the market. Read the reviews. Read the five-star reviews because that's what most of them are. And they will tell you that the book is understandable to a non-scientist. They will tell you that it proves that these scare stories are fake because it does. You will come away believing me about these fake scare stories because they're not true. That's why they are telling you them because you can't verify them for yourselves. So I tell you sort of what the real truth behind these things is. Like for example, Sir David Attenborough claims that hundreds of walruses leapt to their death from the top of a cliff because out of desperation they had come ashore. For some reason, the place they came ashore is a designated walrus sanctuary. So I I think they normally go there, right? It's not out of desperation. And so he showed them falling off the cliff, and he showed this uh, apparently uh, to the economic forum at Davos, and people were weeping in their seats. And the truth is, a pack of 20 to 30 polar bears came up from behind the polar bear, from behind the walruses, and were going to eat them alive. And they've instead of being eaten alive by a polar bear, they leapt off the cliff and died. And the polar bears went down below and ate them there. That was not shown. Nothing about polar bears was shown in in Attenborough's video. And he says that walruses have their home is on the ice and they shouldn't be on the land. Their home is on the ice. No, their home is not on the ice. Their home is in the sea, like sea lions and seals. Not only that, they are a coastal species. They don't go way offshore on an ice floe like bears do. Bears are, are hunting on the ice floe for seals. Walruses don't hunt. They go on the bottom and dig clams with their huge tusks. That's why they have those tusks. So they can dig the clams and other organisms out of the mud. They can't feed anywhere that is deeper than 200, 300 feet. So they can only live near the shore and if there happens to be ice near the shore they will haul out on it because it's easier than clambering up on the rocks and on the land they just come up on the ice but it's not their home it's their resting place and so they are digging down below and and attenborough claims that this is all unnatural and if, if and and it's because there's no ice there in the summer on the on the northern russian shore there's never any ice it goes open water there And All all the walruses
1: die in the summer, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, Yes. No, no. The walruses are are busy eating, feeding offshore. You can see lines of them in my book out there off uh, off the beach. And so my best line in the book, actually, and I don't mind giving this away because there's many other good lines in the book, is that walruses are bottom feeders, similar to Sir David Attenborough (laughs) and his Planet Earth film crew. because they all colluded with this hoax of the walruses jumping to their death because of climate change. They say that carbon dioxide is why the walruses jumped to their death, leapt to their death off the cliff. It was a pack of polar bears. It's well documented. There's photographs of it. And yet he continues to push this narrative. And you won't believe the part about birds and Sir David Attenborough. I won't go on, but seabirds like albatrosses, uh, he claims that they're feeding their chicks plastic bags, mistaking it for food. Wait till you read the real reason why albatross adults are feeding bits of hard plastic, not paper, not plastic bags, bits of hard plastic to their chicks.
1: Yeah, that, I find that material fascinating. So, okay, so Everyone, buy copies of Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. If you have a company, maybe you want to get it for a lot of employees. Uh, I know they can follow you on Twitter at Ecosense Now. Ecosense Now, that's it, right? Uh, Right. What what else should uh, viewers who like this interview, what else should they go do?
0: They should buy the book and read it for themselves and then give it to their high school children. I really believe that where we need to uh, 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 right a wrong is with what's being taught to kids in school these days, uh, partly about the world coming to an end. Uh, and so many teachers have been indoctrinated into the AOC theory of life on earth. And we've got to stop that because they are being made pessimistic about the future at a tender age, and this is wrong. And they're using you know, young girls in blonde pigtails to propagandize them into this. It's the same thing that Hitler and Stalin and Mao did, is use young children waving little flags. And that is the height of disgust, as far as I'm concerned, to use children for propaganda purposes like that. And so I want parents to buy the book, read it themselves so they can see it's worthy of giving to their children. Grade nine and up will easily understand it if they're proficient in English. And then even even their older children. I have older children uh, who have grown up with my work, and they read they read my book and they and we can talk about it over the dinner table and they understand exactly what I'm talking about. And they they're not afraid that the world is coming to an end. And I don't want our young people to be afraid that the world is coming to an end because it most certainly isn't. As a matter of fact, many things are getting better for people. This the technology we have now. I I think there'll be a day when only four people have to work, and they just push a few buttons and everything comes out of factory. I don't know what the future is, but I do know that it's dangerous when there's more takers than there are makers. I've always said that the world is divided into two types of people, the makers and the takers. And as soon as 50% of the people are on the take, you have to worry about the political situation. And many countries have come to that kind of point where more people are dependent on the government for their income than are the ones who are actually producing the wealth. Those are the makers. And so I caution people to think about that. And if you find yourself in the position of being a taker, try to figure out how to become a maker instead.
1: And I'd also just recommend you have a talk online if people search Patrick Moore Producers Consumers, you had to talk think some freedom organization in Canada. And it was really a fascinating topic about how the uh, people in the cities view people outside the cities who are actually producing all this stuff. And I I would just highly recommend that because I think we just were taught, I mean, I'm not exactly in a city, but I grew up in that kind of area. We're taught to look down upon the people who are actually making everything physical for us. And that is a real crime.
0: Well, the, the fact is, people in it's just it isn't just people in the city today. If you live in a town of two to five thousand people, you're on the internet and in front of a screen the whole day, and, and you might as well be in a city. So, people are living in artificial environments. Mechanization and technology are wonderful things, they ended horrible toil for countless millions of people when 80 percent of the population was in agriculture in subsistence agriculture, doing everything by hand. Now that's over, but it's also a problem when a majority of people now live in urban centers and the minority of people who are providing all the food, energy and material things for the city to exist are out in the country. And the city people are easily propagandized into thinking the country people are the enemies of the earth because they are digging and plowing and cutting and drilling and all the things you have to do to get the food energy and materials for the people living on the 30th floor of a condominium in the center of an urban uh, city and those people need to recognize that the, that when they go to the store in the morning the reason the shelves are stocked is because trucks came in at night big trucks came in at night powered by diesel engines and the tractors and combines out on the farm that produced that food were also powered by diesel engines and you try to drive a 60-ton semi with a battery back and forth. Well, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, people got to realize the well, reality. And you gotta
1: imagine mining for that battery. That's another group of people who are not in the cities who are mining for that battery it, if it ever became cost effective.
0: People got to get real about why they are alive in the cities. They're alive in the cities because the people in the country are providing them with absolutely everything they need except their brain.
1: Gotcha. All right. Well, Patrick, you have a kind of sunlight coming. So you almost have a halo, which I think is justified, nice. uh, yes, given yes. Your, your contribution to the world. So I'm really grateful for uh, this new book. Thanks for coming on the show. And I uh, just look forward to your work for many years to come.
0: It's always great to talk to you, Alex. You get to the bottom of things.
1: All right. See you soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Dr. Patrick Moore for joining me. Again, the book is Invisible Catastrophes and, oh, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. I see Amazon has been taking off various controversial books lately. I hope they reform their policies, but as last time I checked, his book is available online uh, at Amazon, and I hope it is there indefinitely because it is is very valuable. And I just want to stress this point that we're taught to assume that human impact is inevitably self-destructive. So the the basic idea is it destroys the delicate balance of nature, and then that eventually destroys us. And just, I want to get rid of this, this total bias in the world. The truth is nature is not a delicate nurturer. It's not a perfect planet. It's wild potential. And when we do things intelligently to impact nature, to make our lives better, that is a good thing. And often it has many beneficial side effects on other species. So it's not that it's always good for other species, nor that that's our purpose, but we need to have an objective view of our impacts. So we need to recognize that often the things that are good for us are also good for other species in general one of the basic shortcomings of the planet from a flourishing perspective of any organism is just there's not enough kind of raw material of life you know things are competing for finite amounts of plants and you can see the ocean it's like how it's limited by the amount of plankton that exists and it's often the, the these basic biological things that are limited and so when we create more warmth in a place or we create certainly when we create more co2 in a place that can lead to more life also sometimes we create structures and structure you know the 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 other organisms can use structures whether to know to sometimes they're a good basis for growing things sometimes they're a good basis for uh, protecting them we really need to just get rid of this idea that oh nature is a delicate balance and all we do is ruin it and it just is bad for every other species and it's bad for us it's really we are making the world a much better place for human beings to live in general, we're making it better for the species that we most care about. And we have a lot of ability to do more. And it is fortunate that the main byproduct of using the form of energy that allows us to all be prosperous is you know, warmth and plant food. If it was cold and lack of plant food, that would be The real problem. And the the fact that people can look at more warmth, particularly toward the poles and more plant food, and see an unmitigated negative that shows that what we have going on is a religion, a religion, you know, the anti human or anti human impact religion that says human impact on the rest of nature is intrinsically immoral and inherently self destructive. And I'm going to talk about that a lot more in my new book, which, by the way, is going well. I'm working with the publisher on editing it and uh, I look forward to your ability to pre-order it. So I'm going to wrap up with that. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at at alexepstein.com. Make sure to sign up for my mailing list at alexepsteinlist.com. Get some great energy talking points at energytalkingpoints.com. What else? I just, I had another one on, oh, Uh, I'm doing a lot on Twitter. So twitter.com slash Alex Epstein has a lot. And if you want to support our research and development and our promotional efforts at the Center for Industrial Progress, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. At the moment, I'm working a lot on new visuals, which is an exciting uh, kind of thing. And so I'm looking forward to that. Also, I'm having the, we have a bi-monthly accelerator call where I answer questions it's it's this week now it's going to be over by the time you see this but if you want a recording of the call which i'll make available for about two weeks you, if you become an accelerator soon then you'll get access to that so we're going to be discussing a lot about the new book about things i've learned about explanation about my work with elected officials so if that interests you or even if it doesn't but you just want to put money toward the acceleration of the spread of these ideas go to industrialprogress.com accelerate All right. That is it for this week. I'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.